Hello and welcome to Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and you are listening to a free preview of today's episode. Foxconn is obviously still very, very, very important to the company, but、um, if they really wanted to mess with Apple, they could do it with other companies as well. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and it's funny. I wonder how often this happens to you, where like international news audiences just pick up on a shred of news that. Looks like some dramatic step,、um, and in reality, it's like in keeping with tradition,、um, years on end. And、uh, the Apple News. I even told readers that Tim Cook was going to be there. I know, like, like a couple weeks, ago, weeks in、right? advance.、Um, <laughs> then I was like, "Oh my god, Tim Cook came to China!" It's like, yeah, he's going to be there next week because of this meeting. Well, it, it came on the heels of the reports that the App Store was being further restricted, and there was controversy on that、yeah. front. And then the iPhones not selling as well as it initially looked like it was going to sell.、Um, and so the I, Huawei phone. Yeah, the, there's just the, been a lot for Apple to the, try to clean up. So. It would direct in some government was... departments to sort of no iPhones, no foreign phones, etc. Yeah, I mean, there, there's. I don't think there's any question that that the China market is going to become. I mean, I'm, I'm Tim Cook probably had a lot to talk about for Apple <laughs> on his trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, but I also think that they're not going to show up and say, "Hey, we're going to move twenty percent next year." They're just going to do it, and then one day they're going to have the capacity, and they can just turn on other capacity outside China. Absolutely, yeah.、Right? No, the dumbest I, thing you do is say, "Hey, Mister, you know, hey." Commerce minister, guess what? Next year we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna use China for twenty percent less of our production, and therefore you're gonna lose X amount of tax revenue and you know several hundred thousand jobs. That's not how you do it, right? Well, and we talked about the the depth of the partnership a couple weeks ago, but in advance of recording here, I just pulled up a New York Times article、um, from 2016、uh, just about the Foxconn operations. And the numbers remain so staggering to me. They write: running at full tilt, the factory here, owned and operated by Apple's manufacturing partner Foxconn, can produce 500,000 iPhones a day. Locals now refer to Shenzhou as iPhone City. The local government has proved instrumental, doling out more than 1.5 billion dollars to Foxconn to build large sections of the factory and nearby employee housing. It paved roads and built power plants. It helps cover continuing energy and transportation costs for the operation. It recruits workers for the assembly line. It pays bonuses to the factory for meeting export targets. So, a lot of public-private partnership there with respect to the Foxconn operations. And if nothing else, this is a reminder that state security interests are always, always, always going to trump. Private sector businesses under Xi, and, and especially anything related to Taiwan. But to your point, I mean, it is also worth remembering that as you know, I, I have a new iPhone, love the phone, have an Apple computer, but、um, you know, we all benefit from Chinese government subsidies. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, is, and Apple is a huge beneficiary of indirectly from Foxconn of PRC government subsidies. And my point on the other episode was that Apple has been able to pursue more ambitious. Technological solutions and just do crazier things with mobile phones than we ever thought possible. In part because of the leverage it had over the manufacturing、mm-hmm. side in China. But your point was they've also made a lot of money. And、um, elsewhere in this New York Times article, Apple manages to earn ninety percent of the profits in the smartphone industry worldwide, even though it accounts for only twelve percent of the sales, according to Strategy Analytics, a research firm. So. That was from 2016,、uh, but the same dynamics 
are still, still in place. And yeah. The other point I was going to make is related. There was, there was, um, and Ben, Ben and his co-host John Gruber talked about it on dithering and Ben wrote about it a little bit today in Sotechery was the news over the last few days about John Stewart ending his show on Apple TV plus because mm-hmm. in part because of creative differences and including the implication in the New York Times article was because he wanted to do reporting about China and Apple objected because Apple doesn't allow content around China. As Ben said, I think, eh, that sounds like spin. It's more likely that the show wasn't doing that well. Right. Because, um, I mean, I watched it once. I was like, yeah, you know, it's not that great. It's just not, it's not, it's it's interesting, but I think it had a really small audience. And so, but it's easy, it's a much easier way to spin it, at least from the non-Apple side, as this is, you know, big, big, bad Apple and their China ties is one of the reasons versus like nobody really watched the show. Very good. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um I have never seen a single episode of the Jon Stewart Apple show. And I was a fan of Jon Stewart when he was on Comedy Central. And one of Ben's points was the talk show format just works much better in a linear TV context where you're flipping channels and you see a talk show. But the idea of like actively seeking out a standalone talk show uh, to to watch on a streaming service is um, not something that people are going to do with all that much frequency. And I think... That was probably reflected in Apple TV's ratings. But there is no question that Apple does not want content that would upset China in any of its uh, yeah. sort of, well, any and of the things, it's, the video efforts it funds. That's I, pretty clear. I think one of the points that Gruber made on Dithering was they probably hashed out the different approaches that Jon Stewart could take to covering all sorts of issues when they initially signed the deal. And there's no way that wasn't discussed Um in the first couple of years of the Stuart Apple partnership. At the same time, the one thing that gives me pause before buying into that narrative completely is that it did sound like, according to the New York Times report last week, that they were only a couple weeks away from returning and shooting an entirely new season. And so to just cut it off now feels pretty abrupt. Um, and it is possible, possible. that there were yeah, creative differences. Uh, China, though, a very useful foil if you're looking to win a PR battle. And that could be blame China. Happening. It used to be blame Canada, right? You know, yeah, was exactly. It? It was South Park, right? It was blame Canada. Make Apple look ridiculous. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I want to close with a few scenes from the big piece in The New Yorker this Evan's week. Piece. Okay. Evan Osnos writes about China after 10 years of she uh, and I won't try to summarize it here. We'll put it in the show notes. Everybody should just go read it. But one section in China, as in much of the world, you can tell a lot about a place by its bookstores. For years, readers in Shanghai, the nation's most cosmopolitan city, had Jifeng, which opened in 1997, just as Wang Xiaobao was breaking through. It was the city's undisputed liberal outpost, where even the most esoteric speakers draw a crowd. But in 2017, the public library, which owned the building, canceled the lease, citing increased regulations on state-owned property. The owner, Yu Miao, scouted new sites, but every time, the landlord got a call and Yu was turned away. He ultimately realized that, quote, Jifeng can't get a foothold. Even the farewell party to sell off the last books was plunged into darkness by sudden, quote, equipment maintenance. Buyers kept shopping in darkness using cell phones as flashlights. Today, nobody would dare try to open a store like that. So um, 
I just wanted to mention this piece because I thought it was a really valuable look at what she has meant to the Chinese people, which is a topic that unfortunately gets less global attention because of how restrictive the information environment can be. Uh, Mm -hmm. What was your reaction to anything in there? But even just that anecdote about Shanghai bookstores or Shanghai bookstores, um, it's just incredibly depressing how much sort of life is being drained out of various aspects of the PRC society. Well, Evan's a great writer and, you know, he wrote, he wrote the book. I mean, this was the age of malaise. He wrote the book called the age of age of ambition about sort of the pre Sierra. Um, you know, this, this story is important. It is, it's so hard to write about what China thinks because there are a billion four people. Yeah. Um, and so you invariably are going to end up writing about some self-selecting. What does America think? Crew. You know? And so what he writes about is mostly elites of various types from business, intellectual, uh, urban, young, urban, middle class, upper middle class, which, of course, matters. And, of course, is a very important, you know, important parts of society. And certainly what he wrote is exactly the stuff that that I'm hearing for for a long time now about mm-hmm. how dispirited people are about the direction she is taking the country. I think there's a good chunk of other people who might not be sort of um, a different social strata who are also dispirited, you know, primarily because of economic issues, because of what happened with COVID. They're not necessarily nostalgic for sort of liberal bookstores or Western ideas. They just want jobs to be easier to get and to be making more money. Um, but I think generally speaking, it's a, it's a really excellent article. I hope everyone, I really recommend everyone read it. It captures a lot of where um, almost anyone you talk to will tell you where China is in terms of people just generally being pretty beaten down right now yeah. um, for various reasons, from the politics to the economy to COVID. Uh, and just in general, the you know most people don't like having the party back in their lives all the time, right? Which is what she is trying to do. Um, so it, it is, it is, um, it's just, it's a, it's another marker, I think, in how, um, how China has changed. You know, certainly I think we have to be careful about nostalgia for the, the 10 years or so before she, because you know, that's, I lived there for a bulk of that time and there were parts of it that were really fun, but China was a mess. And, you know, so much of what she has done was a reaction to really deep problems right. in Chinese society corruption. and Chinese politics where there was a massive amounts of inequity, massive corruption. Really, I think the system was at risk of spiraling apart because it was so just so messed up and so corrupt. You know, and there were when she came in, there were different voices about how do we fix this? And the voices that were arguing for more of a liberal opening up approach lost. Mm-hmm. She was a much more of a double down on sort of going back to our roots, our original mission, what the Communist Party is, you know, and that that's the thinking that won out. Um, but, you know, you, you, if you look back and say, oh, you know, the, the 2000 and the, the, the aughts were great, they were great for some people. If you had right. money in Beijing, the aughts were great. If you were like a migrant worker somewhere or you were, you know, they weren't great for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're right. I mean, I'm reading this with Western eyes. And so like this section in The New Yorker, the space for pop culture, high culture and spontaneous interaction has narrowed to a pinhole. Chinese social media which once was a chaotic hive, has been tamed as powerful voices are silenced and discussions closed. Pop concerts and other performances have been canceled for reasons described only as force majeure, 
Even stand-up comics are forced to submit videos of jokes for advance approval. This spring, a comedian was investigated for improvising a riff on a Chinese military slogan, fight well, win the battle, in a joke about his dogs going crazy over a squirrel. His representatives were fined $2 million and barred from hosting events. Into the cultural void, the party has injected a torrent of publishing under Xi's name. 11 new books in the first five months of this year, far more than any predecessor ever purported to write. Two more since he wrote the article. Oh, my God. Collecting his comments. (laughs) Collecting his comments on every topic from economics and history to the lives of women. Jeremy Barmay, a prominent historian and translator, calls it Xi Jinping's empire of tedium. And um, that last line made me laugh because I've there are so many different white papers that Xi's government releases that are like 25,000 words. And I really want to know like who out there the intended audience is supposed to be because they're just churning out all this different propaganda. And it just reads like drivel after a while. Um, and yet it does seem like that's really the only focus is uh, in, in terms of cultural output is Xi Jinping thought on every different sector of human life and experience. And so coming from the West, it's all very depressing. Uh, no, it, 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 there's that's why like the state media will, you know, the, these big documents come out, these white papers. Um, and then they also will put out these very, you know, basically someone is good at PowerPoint and they put out these infographics that highlight the top 15 points with yeah. like lots of red and fancy colors because Could they be know a most good people chat actually, GPT use case one day. Yeah. <laughs> Let's most break people this are down through these. Mm-hmm. So the one thing to sort of back to me talking about the article and sort of what it captures um, and, you know, my point about, well, you know, part of it is it depends, you know, if, if you talk to business elite, you know, intellectual elite, most of them are, are I think, quite unhappy and, and, and rightfully so. The challenge, though, is that will work if then other parts of society get happier. The economy's better. They see their incomes rising. They see their property values rising. They see that the apartment they pay for gets delivered on time. The problem, I think, is nobody's happy for different yeah. reasons. You know, some people are unhappy because of more intellectual, cultural reasons, but a lot of people are just unhappy because the economy sucks and it's really hard to make money. Right. Or you're a young person and it's impossible to find work. Probably get a job or you can't get your kid into a good school. It's, I mean, they're, so, so, so the party, I think, has done a lot to squeeze out liberal space. You know, she is very much about we were, became too westernized. It's all about our reaching back into our Chinese historical traditions over, you know, 5,000 years of unbroken history, which, of course, is not actually a accurate representation description of history, but that's what they say. It's all about Chinese philosophy, Chinese thought, you know, a a Chinese, basically a Chinese framework for all sorts of social sciences, et cetera, et cetera, to to many ways to, to, if not fully de-Westernize, but at least dramatically reduce the Westernization. Um, And that, of course, understandably makes the Westerners who spend time in China unhappy, but it makes a lot of people who had bought into this idea that China was converging with the the world, the rest Mm -hmm. of the world, the elites unhappy. You crack down on the private enterprise. You crack down on um, whole industries like education, certain parts of the internet sector. Uh, you, people lose a lot of money in stock options. They lose their jobs. They have friends who lose their jobs. I mean, you crack down real estate. So people, you know, their their main, um, so their biggest household asset is is um, right. That's losing the value in a lot of places. Financial. Right? I mean, you sort of. He, she has been really good at pissing. You know, finding ways to piss almost everybody off. Right. In different ways. 
Well, to that end, the return of disappearances and thought work has made clear that for all of China's modernizations, Xi is no longer pantomiming the rule of law. He has returned China to the rule of man. At his core, a longtime observer told me Xi is, quote, Mao with money. What do you think of that label? It's pretty Oh, incendiary. I use Mao without the crazy. No, uh, I agree. With, I agree in, in many ways that um, a lot of what she's doing, if you look at what he's doing around ordering society, around foreign affairs, around building up the military, I think he's doing things that Mao would have loved to be able to do, but didn't have the resources. I was going to say, yeah, it seems like a lot of the same ideas and just, you know, exponentially more resources to work with as he yeah. positions and, China and much on the more competent stage. government and much and a much more capable um, bureaucracy and yeah. security system. And, you know, you look at, we're not going to talk about this podcast, but the, the department of defense put out its annual sort of report on Chinese military power that's mandated by Congress. And it, you know, this is the unclassified version and it's pretty shocking how, how, you know, and, and once again, the U S you know, I think is underestimated where the Chinese are, some of the developments they're making in mil- in their military. And so she is astride a country with quote unquote comprehensive national power that Mao could only have dreamed of. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny because, um, I'm sometimes reluctant to end this podcast on a depressing note because A, I don't want our podcast to become a chore to listen to, but B, (laughs) I'm also just like a naturally optimistic person. So I don't like ending on bad news. But at the same time, I was reading this New Yorker piece Monday night and a piece like that is important because I sometimes catch myself and I'm like, am I overreacting to she or is everyone else underreacting? Because prepping for the podcast every week, reading about what's happening, whether it's foreign policy with neighbors or the expansion of the security state and the repression of citizens in all these different ways, the disappearance of leaders, which isn't necessarily new, but seems like it's gotten more extreme. Um, It's all incredibly ominous. And I just appreciated Evan Osnos sort of synthesizing the many different layers of concern including some important details regarding how frustrating and dispiriting this has been for people on the ground in China. Um, so yeah. who, who cares what we as Westerners ever think in many ways? I mean, the, 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 it's really what's going, you know, to be honest, I think, you know, and I've already seen the people out there criticizing Evan's piece. Oh, he's only talking about the lead and, you know, the nostalgia for the, sort of the, the golden era being an expat, blah, blah, blah. You know, those are people I don't think are spending a lot of time talking to like, a lot of the Chinese, there's a lot of despair in people who um, do matter in Chinese society and right. seeing what's happening. And there's a lot of trepidation about what else could happen under Xi. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that came up, there was a republication of a historical work about the last emperor of the Ming dynasty, this emperor named Chong Zhen, um, and it had been published before. It was republished with a new cover, um, and then it was very quickly pulled from all the bookstores and on the online bookstores. And I think they even tried to get people who bought it to give the books back because on the cover, it was basically the joke, you know, there are certain circles that joke that Xi Jinping is like that last Ming emperor where he tried to revamp the bureaucracy, he purged a bunch of people. He pushed out a whole bunch of policies. They all failed. He ended up hanging himself um, in a park to the North of the forbidden city mm. as the Ming dynasty was overrun. Cause there's, there is this hope, this hopium, I will call it among certain parts of the Chinese elite, um, certainly in the Western world too, that basically she is, you know, and Evan talks about his being known as like the great accelerator. Um, 
is that he's accelerating the demise of the Communist Party. All of his worst he's tendencies, it. yeah. This, he's, all these things he's doing will eventually lead to the party collapsing. And, you know, I think all the things he's doing is to prevent that is, is how he sees it. And I would still put my money on she succeeding and, and the hopium not panning out. Yeah, well, I so mean, I don't know if that's a happy thing or not. I mean, it depends. It, you know, <laughs> there's a line in there about she's father living to 88 years old, I believe, and then his mother is 96, and mother's she still would around, likely yeah. be in yeah. power that entire time as long. No, as he and his can father live. lived to 80, 86 or 87, despite awful treatment during the Cultural Revolution, despite being a guerrilla fighter um, in some of the harshest conditions in the 30s and 40s. I mean, he has good genes. Yeah, well. Um, that's not necessarily an optimistic note to end on because as we've said, it's enticing to dream about some sort of regime change. Um, but the reality is the system has been secured against that in a bunch of important ways, uh, particularly. Right. And, and as people say, it, it, it all looks great, but it's really brittle. And then one day you wake up and something's changed. That's certainly possible, but yeah. you can't build policies on that hope. Right. You can certainly have that as a contingency, but you have to basically work with what you have. Well, floating somewhere between hope and despair here on Sharp China, I'm just glad that I have that New Yorker article to send to people in addition to like 25 Sharp China episodes that people can listen to if they want to get yeah. caught up on where no, things and Evan's, are under and, and Evan's, Evan's, a, Evan's a great writer. He, he's, um, he really, uh, I think he's able to capture certain parts of zeitgeist in a way that very few foreigners ever can. So yeah. I, I highly recommend the article. Well, and part of the tragedy with the information ecosystem under Xi is that it's just really difficult to find out what 20-something people in Beijing or Shanghai might think about, even if it's not yeah. representative of you know what 1.4 billion people think. Or of any age. I mean, we hosted a couple weekends ago, we had friends in from, good friends from Beijing who are, who are, on a long trip outside the country and stayed with us the weekend. We ate really well. Um, we had a 350 dumplings on Sunday. It was oh great. All, all homemade. Um, what a win for Tashi uh, as well, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty happy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was like starting with like, oh, I'm, you know, this, you know, so nice to catch up. I mean, I won't talk to you on WeChat anymore because it's really bad to be talking to a foreigner. I mean, uh, so all this stuff like, and, and people from Beijing, one, they're pretty politically sensitive. Two, a lot of people in Beijing have come from what used to be sort of backgrounds that had some level of protection for, for stuff they would do. And they're just like, you can, there's so many things we won't talk about to anybody now. Right. It's terrible. It's really, it's really, and, you know, this is one anecdote, but again, this is repeated ad nauseum. The whole atmosphere has changed. Yeah. You know, it's, it's incredibly tragic. And, um, this but is from she's perspective, again, this is, I, again, we look at it as tragic. I think if you're Xi Jinping, you look at it, it's, you know, the economy could be better, but this is going to, to plan. Yeah. Well, if you're she personally, <laughs> it's probably yeah. not tragic, but for many more people, um, and literally billions, uh, it is really unfortunate what's happened, but, uh, this well, is why I, I we will need just to say, start the gardening podcast and the Yao Ming uh, deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> some lighter I, I will, and I know we're running long here. I will just say, like we had over the summer, we had we talked about it like the week. I think there were two economists in a row, basically about how the Chinese economy was toast, and of course, then it hasn't collapsed yet. Um, and we talked about how this was sort of a contrarian indicator. I, I will just say that I mean, you look at what they're they're trying that the, the policymakers are trying to get the stock market to um, you know stop going down, start going up. They're trying to fix the real estate market, at least stabilize it. You know, 
it won't take much to change a lot of mood, a lot of people's moods in China if they can figure out how to get people making money again. Yeah. If they can get the economy turned around where they feel like things have bottomed after the awful three years of COVID. Thing, well, not, I should say that because a couple of years were actually not awful for a lot of people, but especially the awful 2022. If they can get back to where people see hope to make money, to be able to sort of see how next year is going to be better, you know, you'll, you won't have a whole bunch of people feeling like it's a big malaise. Yep. They're not there yet, right? And so one of the worries, of course, is, well, what replaces the making money? Is it going to be nationalism? And and that, again, we, and we can, can have you a do more that depressing podcast not, about that some other time. And can you do that effectively if you're not offering people a better deal and financial stability and upward mobility? Like, I'm not sure that you'll be able to, um, but she has a lot working in his favor in terms of yeah. social control and surveillance apparatus and everything else. Um, but you go back to like iPhone city and the partnership with the West um, as more Western investment is alienated. It's an open question as to whether that sort of age of prosperity can return and trickle down to a majority I'm skeptical, of but, Chinese citizens. But yeah. You know, we're going to, I think it doesn't matter what I think we're going to find out. All right. And that is the end of the free preview. If you'd like to hear the rest of today's conversation and get access to full episodes of Sharp China each week, you can go to your show notes and subscribe to either Bill's newsletter, Cynicism, or the Stratechery Bundle, which includes several other podcasts from me and daily writing from my friend Ben Thompson. I'm an incredibly biased news consumer, so I think both are indispensable resources. But either way, Bill and I are going to be here every week talking all things China, and we would love to have you on board. So check out your show notes, subscribe, and we will talk to you soon. 